So we've been following along and learning about David the last few weeks, and we'll continue for a few more. And uh, there are uh, three very significant things that happen in this uh, scripture passage. It's, it's one of the more important passages in the whole story of David uh, as it's told in scripture. And the three things that happen uh, briefly, I just want to make sure we get those big picture things out front and I'll go into a little bit more detail. But this is uh, the spot where God promises an eternal kingdom with a king who comes to the lineage of David. God makes a promise here that Christians believe is fulfilled in Christ, the kind of king that David was asked to be, was promised, uh, recipient of these promises of God. Very important. Second important thing that happens here, and uh, a little bit confusing, is that God refuses David's offer to build him a temple. And uh, we'll go into that in a minute. And then the third thing is that God kind of redefines the relationship between God and God's people in terms of David says, I'll build you a house. God says, no, I'll build you a house. And the house is the line of descent, his family. It's about lineage. And it's therefore about relationship. More than a dwelling place for God, God wants to dwell in the ongoing relationship between God and the people. So it's a little bit of a play on words in Hebrew. The word for house that's translated house uh, throughout this passage is, if I pronounce it right, I'm not sure, bayit. And bayit can mean physical house. Uh, David has a house in his palace. God has a house, perhaps in the ark or maybe in a temple. But it also means lineage. It also means descendants and dwelling place. So God is kind of correcting a kind of mechanical notion of the relationship between God and the people. Now, I love the way this story develops because uh, I think it's interesting that these things all happen kind of together. There's no reason that uh, this promise that God made to David had to go along with, at the same time, a kind of rebuke and a a gentle rebuke, if you will, but a saying no to something that David asked for. But I don't think it's a coincidence that they happened at the same time. I want to explore that a little bit. Uh, So we have here, uh, if we've been reading along in 2 Samuel uh, about all that has happened to David, really extraordinary events, Um, we would notice something uh, that jumps out at us when we get to this chapter, this story. Up to this point, David is always referred to as David. Uh, Even when he becomes king, then they say King David. But when you get to to chapter 7, 
uh, the narrator seems to adopt a different tone and just says, the king, the king. So David, the human being, and the position have gotten melded into one. And this is uh, reflected, I think, in, in not uh, a small way, but in a significant way, in the fact that Nathan kind of also sees this collapse of the king with David into one, and that accounts for the way he handles uh, David's comment. So let's replay it. David, for the first time in his life, is feeling pretty secure with relative peace and prosperity around him and a sense of unity in the kingdom. In fact, David is thinking he's in a really sweet spot. And, in fact, he's now got a wonderful palace. And it starts out in this uh, story telling us that he, he kind of thinks, wow, I've got this great fancy place I live. Maybe God should have a nice place too. And Nathan, who, uh, by the way, is an, an incredibly insightful prophet on down the road, will find out that he's critical to helping uh, David become really aware of, of the wrong that he's done in his uh, indiscretions and, and violence related to Bathsheba. But this is the first we see Nathan being a prophet, and his first stab is, is not so great. Uh, when David says to him, you know what? And it kind of sounds a little bit like an afterthought. I'm doing great now. Maybe I'll make a place for God too. And Nathan, the prophet, who is, in a sense, the closest advisor to the king, says to him, well, do what you want. The Lord is with you. In other words, if you're thinking it, God's endorsing it. Now, um, think about that for a minute. You and I have all had experiences, I'm guessing, where we uh, are struggling with trying to decide what the right thing to do is, and we go to somebody we, we think is pretty wise and, and, and talk to them about it and maybe even, you know, kind of ask their advice. And, and it feels pretty good when somebody says to you, you do, you are right. You just do exactly what you want. And that's the right thing to do. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. I like that. Except a little farther on down the road, you think, were they just telling me what I wanted to hear? Was that why I went to them in the first place? How good of advice is that? So Nathan tells David, well, you're the king, and look at your journey. Clearly, do whatever you want. And then the rest of the scripture is about God speaking to Nathan and calling him into a different accounting for the way he gives advice and the kind of advice he gave. Because I think God thinks that there is something kind of hazardous going on 
and David's attitude. And early on, he wants to prevent David from making some mistakes based on that. So David is chastised, we can tell, even though, you know, this is not a big punishment, because every time God talks to Nathan and tells him to say something to David, he doesn't call him the king. He says, tell my servant David. Tell my servant David. So David, who's now in his mind become the king, God can tell needs to be reminded that it's really only because he is God's servant that he is the king, and he is always to remain God's servant. Now, that is such a human thing. Who hasn't been there before? Things go well. You're starting to feel like, I don't need God quite as much. Yeah, God and I, we're, we're on the same page. We're gelling. I don't need to think about it that much. I don't need to keep studying. I don't need to keep trying to seek people's counsel. I don't need to really worry about growing. We're on the same page. But God does not want to leave David in that place. Uh, I had this wonderful experience at an uh, annual conference of hearing Zan Holmes preach. Uh, how many of you, anybody have heard of, did you take Disciple 1? If you took Disciple 1 in the old version, Zan Holmes was the wonderful person who every week introduced the topic. He's one of the leading ministers and preachers of United Methodism. Uh, he came back to preach this year. I was so excited to hear him. I'd heard him 30 years ago, and he seemed like he was well up in years then. <laughs> Although he is incredibly vital, and his words have so much power, they jump into the room and right into your heart. And he has really had an impressive leadership in the church. He grew one of the largest churches in Texas. Uh, he was not only an outstanding leader in the denomination and in his local church, but in helping his church impact the community. In fact, he served in the state legislature in Texas at one time while he was pastoring that church. He's just a person who's alive with the spirit of God. Um, so I, I was kind of, I was really moved by a story he told. He, uh, his first wife has died. He's remarried. And his um, wife has some business in uh, Los Angeles. So between his place in Texas and the place in Los Angeles, he started going to a new church in Los Angeles. And only he's not there all the time. So he goes uh, early on and first few Sundays, and he hears the pastor make what is a fairly traditional in the African-American church, kind of an altar call to come up and dedicate yourself and, and join the church. And, and he responds and goes forward, and, and uh, they get his information. And then, then he and his wife are gone for a few weeks. They're back in Texas. And uh, he says he, he, he gets a, a message on his answering machine uh, from the associate the associate minister at the Los Angeles church saying, Dr. Holmes, uh, we were so happy that you came up and 
uh, took the uh, pledge of membership. But Dr. Holmes, we want you to know that everybody who comes up and takes the pledge of membership is required to come to a membership class uh, to understand what all is involved with that. And, uh, and we'd like that to happen within a month. And Dr. Holmes, we haven't seen you yet. And we hope to see you. So he uh, says, oh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, he goes back and he's at the church again for a couple more visits and, and, uh, and then is gone again and he gets another call on his answering machine. Dr. Holmes, this is the associate minister at, at the church. Uh, so pleased that you made it back to church. Was uh, Just wanted to remind you, Dr. Holmes, that it's now been almost two months and uh, we require people who come up for the membership vow to take a membership class and we'd really like to see you there. Uh, and Zan Holmes said, you know, after the second message, he kind of thought, does he know who I am? And of course, I was thinking the same thing. Does he know who he is? He said, I've written membership class uh, lessons uh, and published them. And, and, and he went on. And I, I was, yeah. But he said a couple days later, he was praying. And, and he said he just heard God speak to him and say, who do you think you are? <laughs> who do you think you are? I'm not done with you yet which was really humbling for me, because I think if I were Suzanne Holmes, I'd really feel done. <laughs> and so he said he went to the, the membership class the next Sunday. He was in town, and he was the only one there with the associate minister. But he said he learned a few things. And I think David is kind of at this point, in, in a sense. He's got this little bit of a a moment where he needs to hear, who do you think that you are? King, you're a servant. The only way you got where you are is because I was there with you the whole way. And I think the, the idea about the house, uh, building a house for God, God rejects, not because God has anything against worship places, or the temple, but God has discerned that David sees it almost like as a box to put God in. And he wants to put that box right next to the palace so he can keep tabs on it and he can call upon its power to endorse whatever he's doing. And that's when religion becomes like ideology. And uh, God didn't want that to happen. So he said, not you, not now. I think another reason that God kind of said, not you, not now, but on to Solomon is that exactly, Gwen, you picked it up so well in the children's message. Thank you. When you feel like God is calling you to do something, and you think, gosh, that's really big. I can't do that all myself. I, I must have heard wrong. I must have heard wrong. Uh, maybe what you don't understand, what David didn't understand, is that God can call other people too and will. If there's something that God wants to have done that's too big for you, 
but you're supposed to be part of it, then you're supposed to be part of it and do our part. That really hit me. But I think there are a lot of things I feel like, oh, I should be doing something about that. I feel like, I really feel convicted about that, but I, I, can't, I can't understand, I can't be understanding that, right? Because I don't know what to do about that, and I'm sure I can't do much impact there. I'm supposed to jump in anyway, because God's not just talking to me, He's talking to a lot of people. And we are supposed to take assurance by the promise that God is not checking out on the relationship. God's love will remain steadfast. We may try, we may fail, we may get distracted, we may wander away, we are supposed to be servants, we may fail at it, but God is not going to quit on us. It's been God's freedom and God's grace that has chosen little shepherd boy David to bring him to this place. And it is God's freedom and God's grace and God's character that never forgets a promise that will sustain us throughout. So, uh, I know I wasn't here last Sunday, but I was, uh, I came back in time to preach at Westminster Thurber at their service uh, at 3.30, and I did this passage, a little tryout for them, and last week, this is where I stopped, and um, I, I could stop again there, uh, but I, I've had a whole another week to think about it, and it was really uh, this, this, this story really grabbed me and felt like it was calling out for more. And, uh, and then I read a commentary and I thought, yes, this is, this is, why, this is why it felt so real to me. Uh, and I'm going to read you the commentary so it can be their idea, not mine, clearly. <laughs> but you know, it, this passage talks about a king and his politics and God's plan and purposes. And it is the assertion of this wise commentator that the text is a summons to stand boldly in the tension created by faith commitment and political engagement. To stand between God's interests and the world's interests. Now I have to tell you, uh, this is now this is me, and I'm going to come back to the writer. I have to tell you that uh, that feels scary to me. Uh, John and I have had these conversations. I'm not going to speak for him, but we have had these conversations about right now. It feels like there are an awful lot of moral issues out there, crying out for us to speak, and yet feels so hazardous and ambiguous to do so. I just want to retreat and put God in the box and go visit God in the box and come back out to the world. Because we have such a polarized environment, 
I'm, I'm so afraid that anything that is said, even if I'm thinking I'm speaking about principle, it will somehow sound to someone else that, that their principles are being overlooked or dismissed, uh, or, that, uh, or that I'm all already in a, a speaking from a political or an ideological standpoint. It seems so hazardous to go there. I know that people who think differently than I do have some principled reasons for doing so. I don't know in the pulpit if I can capture the complexities of the kind of situation we're in, and I just want to go back sometimes and go visit God in a box. And that's why this passage really challenged me. It says, God has taken the risk of engaging with the political interests of kingdom. This text summons the church to risk such engagement as well. To respond to this summons will be to get ecclesiastical hands dirty, debating public policy on important issues, upholding value commitments and integrity in public institutions, standing in opposition to power structures when God's justice demands it, supporting power structures when mutually affirmed goals allow it. We may, like David, and here's some of the good news actually, have occasions to repent when the interests of power tempt us over the line. And political ideology cannot be disinterested, unengaged religion. Oops, I skipped that. Tempt us over the line, and we act in our own interests rather than in God's interests. But this passage reminds us that the alternative to this risky tension of faith and political ideology cannot be disinterested, unengaged religion. That's not what God has modeled for us. In David, God risks the dangers of ideological manipulation for the sake of bringing the grace of divine promise, the grace of God's love into close engagement with public and political realities. The church can do no less. Now I continue to be concerned about the mixture of politics and religion, particularly in a pulpit setting, because it's one voice. And uh, there's not dialogue involved in that. Uh, but I'm going to be looking for ways to have uh, situations, classes, contexts where we can have a more dialogical approach to being prophetic witnesses in our faith communities, even knowing that they, that can feel like a hazardous place. Um, I'm, taking, I'm taking the model and this scripture at its word that God wants us to go ahead and face that risk. So David's at a place in his life where all his, for a while at least, his kind of political external enemies are subdued. And in this passage, God gives him the promise of steadfast, loving relationship with him and the line to come after him, the servant king. And he also does him the favor of cautioning him about the external enemies that we all carry within us. 
that ego that desires to take all that is good that's given to us and make it all about ourselves. And so I'm thankful that God spoke to Nathan that day and that it spoke to me this week. May God continue to understand, add to our understanding of his word. Amen.